Give him praise one more time. Clap, speak, shout, dance. Hallelujah. Praise God. You can be seated. (laughs) Praise God. Remember a few weeks ago, um, I don't remember which sermon it was, but it might have, the title might have been, You See What You Look For. Um, don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. A lot of things I feel like God has been speaking to us as a church, not even in just the last couple months, um, but in the last several years. I think a lot of the things that we've been wrestling with as a church, restoration, restoration vision, really um, is what's happening right now in our world. Um, 2 Corinthians is where we are today, and 2 Corinthians chapter 13 has been one of our key verses. We're going to get to it at some point um, during the day today, but this is the 19th part of our series. Some of you are like, are you going to tell us that every week? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but we're in the, we're using a resource called The Untold Story by Frank Viola. Uh, I'm convinced that most of us as evangelical Christians are biblically illiterate. Most of us don't spend much time in the Word, and most of us that do spend time in the Word many times go to the Word to prove what we already believe or want to believe. Um, none of us believe we have itching ears, and yet the Bible says that we, it warns us that in the last days, people will gather around themselves, people who will tell them what their own itching ears want to hear. Now, can I just say this? People who have itching ears doesn't mean they're going to go to hell. It just means they refuse to see a part of truth. Okay? So if they have put faith in Christ but refuse to see truth in a certain area, they're going to gather a teacher around them that tells them what they want to hear to appease themselves, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be lost for all eternity. You know, even when Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 1 that many preach Christ with wrong motives, you remember that? And he says, but it it doesn't matter. At least Christ, Christ is preached. I mean, isn't that weird? See... I don't know about you, but the more I study the Bible, the more questions I come up with than answers. I, I, it's, it's true. Like, how can you possibly preach Christ with wrong motives and yet Paul say that's okay? I, I don't know what to do with that. But we're going to wrestle with some of that today. You're going to love the title, Babies in Bathwater. Babies in Bathwater. You see, I'm a, I'm a schedule guy. We've put a schedule together, and this week we were reading 2 Corinthians and pages 126 and 127 out of the, the book by Frank Viola. And uh, I've been really nervous that we're going to have to get off schedule at some point and not finish by the end of the year. Um, and it's just going to happen because we've got some guests that will be coming later this fall. And so eventually we're going to get off schedule. But we'll tell you the new schedule when we get there. But this coming week, uh, a short reading. Two pages out of here, 127 to 129. Acts chapter 20, 7 through 12. Six verses. You can start reading the book of Romans, too, because we're going to read that next week, the following week. Um, And I'm going to give you a homework assignment at the end, too, and uh, 
Yeah, so we're, we'll get there. But let's start with this idea, babies in bathwater. You've probably heard the phrase, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And what it's, that phrase is encouraging us to do is to be careful that in our quest to get rid of something bad, we don't throw out something good along with it. And we have a tendency to do that. I mean, it, throughout church history, we've responded to doctrinal error, sometimes by throwing out babies with bathwater. And I think even sometimes in the, the church history, we've turned bathwater, or we've at least tried, to turn bathwater into babies. Meaning the things that we fight for are more bathwater than baby, but we keep fighting for that. We have to be careful as believers that we avoid extremes. The only extreme I think we're called to in the scripture is that extreme allegiance to Jesus over everything. Jesus more than my relationships, Jesus more than my possessions, Jesus more than my nationality, Jesus supreme allegiance over everything. But even in the call to do that, we're called to love our neighbor who is like ourselves. And so in our desire to give extreme allegiance to Jesus, it's still possible to throw out the baby with the bathwater and to mistreat the person that I'm talking to. And that's what I think happens to the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so that's what I, as we step back and we look at this entire book, it's hard to preach a book. I mean, it's easy to take a passage out of the book and just preach on one passage, but when, when I'm trying to give you an overview of the whole book, I have to step back from that book and say, what's being said? Why is this letter being written? And how do we put that into um, the context? And at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says these words, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And we're going to come back to this scripture later, but I wanted to start with it on the screen because at the end of this letter, what Paul is saying to these believers is there needs to be an examination done. And uh, I hope we, we talk about that. And this is the, what I think is a call to the church right now in our world. There needs to be an examination done of our lives. I know that things are crazy in our world right now. They're just they're crazy. But can I promise you, God is not surprised nor changing plans. I don't like it any more than all of you. I don't. I, don't, I would love to just go back to the way things were. Wouldn't, I mean, doesn't that sound like a good thing? I mean, I would love to go back into a Norman Rockwell painting. Amen? I mean, let's just, oh, couldn't you just dive in there? But in the reality is, that's not where we are. And I'm not going to long for something that's not coming. Because where we're going is not where we've been. And the good news is, God's gone before us, and he will be with us. So even though it's going to be uncertain, and even though it could be shaky, it's going to be okay. That's what I know. I don't know how familiar you, you, you are with the, the prophets, but there's a prophecy that I've, uh, the book of Amos. Amos prophesies to the nation of Israel. And uh, I want to read to you a couple verses as we examine ourselves. Where This is God's word to his people. God's word to his people. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. 
Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice offerings, I will not have regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And if you read all of Amos chapter 5, Amos chapter 5 is God condemning his people for the mistreatment of other people. They haven't taken care of the poor. They haven't taken care of the orphan. They haven't taken care of the widow. They've been mistreating their fellow, brother, their fellow Israelites. And God actually says to them, I hate the noise of your songs. I hate your festivals. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies, and in Jeremiah 27.6, Jeremiah 43.10, God says, I'm going to use my servant Nebuchadnezzar to bring about punishment. My servant Nebuchadnezzar. If you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, he was not God's servant. Or at least we wouldn't think he was. He was kind of mean. And he humiliated people. And he killed people. And he destroyed people. And yet God chose to use him to judge his people. What do I want us to examine our hearts for? I am in no way implying that God is behind us not being able to worship or sing. I'm not implying that at all. But I'm asking us to examine our hearts and say, is there anything we as a church need to repent of? I believe our land needs healing. And I believe the prescription is my people called by my name, humble themselves, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and repent. Turn from their wicked ways. Repent. We live in a land where we've been given a lot of freedoms. And one of the things I've been asking myself over the last several weeks is, God, have I used my freedoms to serve others or myself? Has your church, have we used our freedoms to serve others or just to build bigger? I mean, as the American church, have we judged success by how large our church is, how many people attend it, or by how many people in our communities we're actually impacting? How many poor people we're serving? How many people we're making a difference in their lives rather than just wanting more from me? You know, we, we want to bring prayer back to school, but as a pastor of 22 years, I've yet to see a lot of people attend prayer meetings in our churches. We want to be able to sing in a corporate worship gathering, but I wonder how many of us just join our families together at home and have a time of worship and prayer in our own homes. And so let's be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's examine our hearts. Now, because here's the thing. It doesn't take a lot of discernment to look at our world and see there's a lot that sinners need to repent for. Can I just say that? It doesn't take a lot of discernment. But sometimes we get so busy telling them what to repent for that we forget to look at our own hearts. We could actually keep God's judgment off of our land if his people would repent 
And yet all of my life I hear about how we're storing up God's wrath against America. And it's like, just repent. Like, I'm going to repent on behalf of everybody. It doesn't matter whether I'm guilty of it or not. I'm just repenting. Dear God, let you find one person, and I'll be it to repent on behalf of everyone. Just like Daniel. Daniel repented on behalf of his nation. Let's, let Restoration Church be that type of people. See, because 2 Corinthians, some of you are like, what's 2 Corinthians talk about? We've talked about over the last several weeks, and I even linked um, a Bible Project video to Slack. It kind of gives you an overview of, uh, the Bible Project puts great videos together, give you overviews of books. Um, I was going to share it here, but it's eight minutes long, plus I didn't know if I had the copyright, and I didn't know if they'd mute us, and I wanted all you to be able to hear it. So it's on Slack. You can find it. You can watch it. It gives you the overview of the book, because Paul has written at least two letters we know to the Corinthians, one in Corinthians 1, Corinthians 2 that we have. But we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, but now I'm writing to you. So it appears that he wrote to them a letter we do not have because in our 1 Corinthians, he wrote to them and now he's writing to them. And then we come to 2 Corinthians and he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. By the way, repentance is not crying. Repentance is changing our behavior. Okay? It's turning away from behavior. So when sorrow leads us to repentance, it means we, that sorrow we feel led us to change how we live. That's what Paul says to them. But then he goes on to talk about a sorrow, a worldly sorrow that actually leads to death. If you just sit and feel guilty all the time about what you've done or what someone else has done, that leads to death. Okay? Be sorry, absolutely, and then change. That's the simple biblical pattern. Okay? Sorrow leads to repentance. And so we, some scholars think that this letter he's referring to here in 2 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians. But we know that he's about to tell us in chapter 13 this is going to be his third visit. And so we believe that after his letter that we call 1 Corinthians, he had to visit them because they rejected his letter, and that visit didn't go well because they rejected him. And then as a result of that, we believe he wrote another letter to them as a rebuke, and the moment he sent it, he was like, oh, why did I do that? I mean, he did it with right motives. But maybe I was too harsh, he thought. Because I don't know if you have any idea what it's like as a pastor to want to just tell you things that are going to make you smile and like me. But if I do that, if you all always smile and like me, I don't know that I'm doing my job right. Because God's word ought to cut us. And just because I present an idea to you from here doesn't make me the final say on it. I could be wrong too. And we have to learn as a body of Christ how to wrestle with these things. I don't know that the body of Christ knows how to do this. So Paul writes this letter. He's going to visit them. Maybe there's four letters. Maybe there's not. I don't know. But we've talked about the context of this. Remember when he was in Ephesus, we looked at Acts 19 and Acts 20 and what Paul was feeling when he was like 
being faced with all of these situations. And we looked at a couple of those verses uh, last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles that we experienced in Asia, in the province of Asia, uh, Ephesus. We were under great pressure. He despaired of life. Uh, but all of this happened so that we would learn to rely on God, not on ourselves, on God who raises the dead. Can I tell you, it's okay that right now you feel anxious. It's okay right now that you feel like the world is turned upside down. Because the only way for us as believers to actually learn to rely upon God in ways that we have not in the past is for us to walk through things we haven't had to walk through in the past. But let's be careful as we walk through them that we learn to rely on Him, not on ourselves, not on what we did before, not on what we did the last time. We're all trying to go back to something, and God says, I want you to step into something. You still with me? Remember, Paul was facing opposition from sinners, from the Gentiles, opposition from the Jews, and opposition from this church. I cannot imagine what Paul is going through. The accusations that the Corinthian church, that these apostles that have come into the Corinthian church are saying is that Paul has no concern for the church. Paul has no concern for the church. He's preaching for his own gain. The guy that won't take any money for himself is preaching for his own gain. That's what's being said about him. That he is poor and unimpressive. That's what's being said about him. He's not a very good speaker. He's under constant persecution and suffering. It must prove that he is not, doesn't have the favor of God on his life. Look at all the suffering that he's going through. That's a sure sign he has no apostolic authority. And you know what Paul does with all those arguments? He actually admits to them. But he actually uses them to prove his apostolic authority. Look, I have worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea. Got to take a breath. Danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So the question I want you to ask is, are the accusations being made against Paul true? A church that he has planted, served, given himself to, some other people have come in, pointed out some of his flaws, and said, see, he's not an apostle. And the church went with it. They went with it. I believe the overarching theme of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of his apostolic authority. Everything he's doing from beginning to end is defending himself and his ministry. Yet he does it in a very humble way, not in a self-serving way. Although, 
He was accused of doing it in a self-serving way by some in the church. The first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians are all about his desire to be reconciled to the church, for them to accept him as an apostolic leader over them. He's talking about his concern for them and his love for them. He even tells them to restore the divisive brother and forgive him. The ringleader, the guy who started all of this trouble against Paul himself, he's telling the church, okay, he's been rebuked. Now forgive him and bring him back in. Are you sure about that, Paul? Shouldn't we wait and see if he's like, truly repentant before we bring him back in. Look at all the trouble that he caused. He didn't cause trouble for anyone more than Paul. And Paul, in these seven chapters, gives us all of these analogies, and they're great. And we use them all of the time to talk about our faith. Okay? Things like 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as though sent from God. Here's what I want you to understand. When when Paul says us, he's not talking about himself and the Corinthians. He's talking about himself and his traveling companions. He's defending his apostolic ministry. Now, that does not mean that this doesn't apply to all of us in the body of Christ. It does. I, I mean, it's a true statement. But Paul is defending his right as an apostle over this church. This is what he's writing. And we take it and... Oh, I love that. Let's put that on a plaque and put it in our house. And it, great, but just make sure we understand every analogy that he's using in these first seven chapters is all about building a case for why he has authority as an apostle over that church. What he's trying to teach them is that true leadership, true authority is not about status. It's not about being impressive. It's about pointing to the one who is most impressive. He's not going to give a resume for all the reasons they should trust him. In fact, he says, you know what I'm like? I'm like a slave being led in a triumphal procession through Christ. I mean, it kind of goes against everything they think a speaker should be. A speaker should be impressive. He should have degrees. He should have pedigree. He should have all of these things. He should be just like the world leaders. He should be impressive like Caesar. That's the kind of leader we want in our church. And Paul says, I'm not going to put those things on display. I'm a slave to Christ. He talks about the new covenant compared to the old covenant, the ministry of reconciliation that God has given him and his traveling companions. Now, again, God has given all of us the ministry of reconciliation. That's just not Paul's point. His point is he has been given this message of reconciliation to tell people to be reconciled to God. He goes into chapter 4, another great passage that he gives us. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. 
Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, he's not talking about the whole body of Christ here. He's talking about himself. He's defending his ministry to this church. Again, does that mean that we don't all have a ministry? No, we all have a ministry. Does that mean we shouldn't all renounce secret and shameful ways? No, we should all renounce secret and shameful ways. But what Paul is doing is building up this case. And then look at what he says here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What's he saying? He's saying the ministry God gave in me, you're looking at me and saying, hey, you're not real impressive, Paul. You're not, you're not you know, what I want. And Paul says, but God put this treasure in this jar that you don't like to show that it's from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side. Again, talking about himself. But not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. But for we who are alive are always being over to, given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Again, I know all of us can apply this to our lives, but why? Paul is defending his authority. Why is this important? We're going to talk about that in just a second. Because then he digresses. Seven chapters he does this. In chapters 8 and 9, he changes the topic. And do you know, well, other than his apostolic authority, do you know the only other thing that Paul talks about in this letter is the forgotten generosity of the church? That's what he talks about. The collection for the poor. You remember in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council that we talked about and what the Gentile believers were supposed to do? Okay, just these three things. Oh, and by the way, don't neglect the poor. If you are not familiar with the prophets, read the prophets. The overwhelming condemnation God gives his people is not idolatry, it's not sexual immorality, it's their treatment of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. It's throughout the Old Testament. How they treat others. Why are they supposed to? Because they themselves were once slaves. You were once foreigners. And so if you mistreat the foreigner, you've forgotten where I brought you from. That's what he overwhelmingly condemns them for. Their mistreatment of other people. And Paul brings this all the way back. In chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, he's just made a case that Jesus was exalted through suffering. He's emphasized that the self-giving love of God always seeks the well-being of others. And his ministry is a call to imitate Christ. That's what he said. And then he goes into chapters 8 and 9, and he's talking about more than just money. He's talking about generosity as a lifestyle. And their lack of generosity is a proof that they've not been transformed by the gospel. Paul says, if you aren't being generous, you don't even know the gospel. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a familiar verse. We, we use it a lot. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's talking about generosity, but not just in money, in mercy, in kindness, in love. Generous. As God's people, we should be generous. Because why? Because he was generous. He lavished his love on us, even while we were his enemies. If we cannot love our enemies, if we cannot do good to those who hate us, if we cannot pray for those who persecute us, I don't believe we've actually encountered the life-transforming truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody can be good to those who are good to them, but it takes the power of God at work in our hearts to be good to those who hate us. And that's what Paul is emphasizing. Can I tell you this? Tithing is not generosity. <laughs> it's not. Paul isn't talking about tithing here. He's talking about generosity. Have you and I used our money more for ourselves or more for the poor? More for those in need? As a church, have we spent more money on our community or on ourselves, in our comfort? This is, these are the things we have to wrestle with. See, the Pharisees tithe their spices. They tithe their, their, their things from their herb gardens. And Jesus said, hey, follow the Pharisees. They're teaching you the right standard, but they're not doing the right standard because they've neglected justice, mercy, and humility. We don't want to just set the standard. We want to live the standard. Extreme generosity. And the funny thing is, is he even says, I want to compare your giving with others. See, one of the things in the Assemblies of God, we used to put these reports out. This church gave this much to missions. This church gave this much to missions. And we used to have like banquets and parties and plaques and we would celebrate those who did well. But we had to stop. You know why we had to stop? Because some people felt bad. Because they didn't give as much. Or, oh, we're looking at that church over. Rather than celebrate, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not about how much you give versus how much they give. It's about celebrating how much we're all doing and celebrating the grace of God on that church. Praise God that that church gave $20,000 to missions, but we only gave 1000 But praise God we gave 1000 why can't we just celebrate each other in the body of Christ? Why does it have to be, oh, this compares. Paul compares them without it being sinful. It's, it's meant to encourage all of us. But we look at it through these worldly lenses. Then he goes into chapter 9. Remember this. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So he's like, hey, don't forget to be generous in everything you do. And then in chapter 10, do you know what he goes back to? Comparing himself to these super apostles. These people that have crept into the Corinthian church and have said, and so he, he begins to compare the, himself to them. These Jewish Bible experts that have come in, the super apostles. Paul says, Bible expert? I'm a Pharisee, trained under Gamaliel. 
I've memorized all the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, the church is looking for letters of recommendation. He says this earlier. You're looking for letters of recommendation. Do you know what my letters of recommendation are? They're you. You wouldn't even be a church if I hadn't come there. You are my letters of recommendation. God's written you upon our hearts. What's he referring back to? Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 36. What's Paul doing? He's using a rabbinic teaching method to show, I know the Hebrew scriptures. I'm pointing back to the Hebrew scriptures. So these guys that think they're Bible experts, I'm a Bible expert. These guys had knowledge of Jesus. Paul's like, knowledge of Jesus? <laughs> I was trained by the resurrected Jesus. He took me aside and trained me. Remember? And I've seen visions of the heavenly places. Isn't that crazy? And these, these guys that are coming in, these super apostles, they're actually charging them money. Funny thing. Paul says if you're taught the word of God by someone, you should give them money. He says it. So they're not doing what Paul doesn't say to do. But Paul never did that himself. It's so weird. Paul says this is what you should do, but I don't want your money. And because of that, they're actually saying that's a reason he's not an apostle. Today we say people that ask for money, they're not really true Christians. And they said Paul, because he didn't ask for money, wasn't a true apostle. It's so crazy how we just throw out the baby with the bathwater. So Paul says, I'm not going to boast in any of these things. I used to read that and think, mm, that's an interesting argument. He gives them all of the reasons that he's qualified, but then he says, I'm not going to boast in them. And in a way, I was like, is that like an underhanded way to just be like, here's my, here's what you're asking for? Haha, -ha, there it is. But I'm really not boasting in it. But if Paul has renounced secret and shameful ways, that's not what he's doing. So then I had to dig and find out what's he doing. Well, what Paul is doing is saying, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. I'm going to boast in my sufferings. I'm going to boast in the things. He's telling the Corinthian church, you need to put your perspective in the proper place. You need to boast in what Christ actually matters, thinks is important. I could boast in these things, but I'm not. But by emphasizing them, what Paul is saying is they're still important. Just because I don't boast in my understanding of the Scripture doesn't mean you shouldn't study the Scripture. You should study the Scripture. Absolutely. You should memorize the law. You should memorize the prophets. You should memorize the writings. You should. Just because I'm not boasting in how well I know Jesus doesn't mean you shouldn't know Jesus. You should know Jesus. So by putting them in the argument, Paul is saying these are important. They're just not where I put my perspective. I put my perspective, I put my credentials in following Christ. Because here's the thing. We live in a culture today that rejects authority. That would be a great place to say amen. We reject authority. Unless, of course, we agree with the authority. Then if we agree with the authority, we accept it. But if we disagree with the authority, we reject it. Spiritual authority included. Spiritual authority throughout the years has been abused and it's been corrupted. We've all seen it. We've all read the headlines of ministers who have had, who have had ladies that come in and they counsel them and they abuse that position and they begin a relationship with them that's inappropriate. They mistreat people. They tell people how to live their lives, how to give their money. They embezzle funds. It's been abused. Absolutely. And those who practice that type of leadership will be judged by the one they claim to represent. However, 
We should never submit to leaders who are abusing their position. But neither should we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We live in a day where there is a large movement meant to discredit people in the body of Christ. People in the body of Christ. Teachers in the body of Christ. When the Apostle Paul, at the end of chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, he says, I'm afraid that when I come to you, I might not find you as I, I want you to be. You may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that, look at what he's, he fears that he might find. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. If we step back for a moment and just the church in America, are these things, would, would Jesus, if, if he visited the church in America, would he find these things? And if that doesn't give us cause to repent, I worry about us. I've grown up in church, and I've seen examples of it. I've been examples of it. But he doesn't stop there. I'm also afraid that when I come, I will be grieved over the many who have sinned and not repented of impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery. Yeah. I mean, the obvious sins and the respectable sins, they're all the same. Paul's like, none of them have a place in your life. Get them out of your life. Examine your lives. And what we've done, I believe, in the body of Christ, is that we, we treat teachers in the body of Christ, churches in the body of Christ, in ways more like that first list. Rather than touch any of the hot topics of our day, God forbid I go there, let's talk about one that most of us in the room agree on, women in ministry. The church has wrestled with this one for years, haven't we? Should women serve in leadership in the church? I don't know. Some passages of the Bible make it seem like they should. Some make it seem like they shouldn't. And so what we do is we wrestle with it. And here's what I believe. I believe you could literally come to the conclusion either way. I believe you could come to the conclusion that women should not be leaders in the church, and that could be your conclusion. I believe that. I also believe, like our church believes, that you can come to the conclusion women should be in ministry within the church. It's a viable thing. Either way, I think they're both viable options, and I respect members of the body of Christ that believe both ways. And I don't believe that anyone's salvation is hanging in the balance based on that. However... If we tell another member of the body of Christ in a mocking way to go home and we laugh and applaud, we have just thrown out baby with bathwater. That's not okay. That's another member of the body of Christ who believes differently in a viable way than I do. And we have no problem mocking it. The charismatic movement has been another hot topic. And so we look at people that believe in the gifts of the Spirit that they operate today, and some believe that they don't operate today. That's a viable way to believe. I don't think your salvation is in question if you believe that way. We believe differently. We believe they do operate today. 
And so we, we act in it, but when we begin to mock other members of the body of Christ for their beliefs, unless you think that I'm just picking on everyone but us, the assemblies of God history troubles me sometimes too. Because when we started our movement and we advertised our meetings and we said, no deadbeats allowed, uh, we're just as guilty as saying, go home. Oh, I know that those people were mistreating them and I get all of it. I just think as a church, I want to rise above it. I want to rise above it. I want to stand for truth without putting others down. I want to stand for what's right without mocking those because that's exactly what's happened to the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul, they've come along and they've pointed to his flaws and they said, see, he's a, he's a, he's a false teacher. He's not a true apostle. They did it to Paul and we're doing it still today. Because we look at teachers, we don't have up close and personal in their lives. And can I tell you something? If I made a statement today, and I took three of you after service into a room separately and said, hey, repeat back to me what I said. I'm guessing there'd be four different ideas of what I just said. It's impossible for us, if we're not going to sit at the table and have conversations and wrestle with these things, we cannot know what's in other people's hearts. Just this week, I had an opportunity. This week, an article was on Facebook that caught my attention. Does that happen to anybody? Okay, it caught my attention. It was called The Respectable Sins of the Reformed World. I'm like, ooh, that sounds good. I trusted the person that posted it too. I'm like, nah, they're a believer. I could read this. So I read it. And do you know what the respectable sins of the Reformed world were? Suspicion, gossip, slander, meddling, idleness, and impugning. Now that's a big word. I didn't know what it meant either. Impugning means to question the motives of another person. And the author of this article says, we can't even, the Bible tells us, we can't even know the motives of our own heart. What makes us think we're going to know the motives of another person's heart? It was a great article, but I almost didn't read it. You know why? Because when I opened it, I recognized the picture. And the only other time I read an article by this person was when someone sent it to me because we were reading the book, Draw the Circle. And they sent me an article by this man, this man, and he was telling us that Mark Batterson is preaching a prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it. He's all these things. And the funny thing is, is I've read Draw the Circle at that point six times, six times. And I never got that same impression. It's funny that he reached that conclusion, but I didn't. And so because of that memory, I almost didn't read this article. And I totally agreed with everything he said here. You know, the difference is I've read Mark Batterson. I've read seven of his books. I've listened to three of his teachings. I listened to his podcast. I've heard him speak live. I have friends who are friends with him. I have a relationship with Mark Batterson, and I assure you he is not preaching prosperity gospel or name it, claim it. I guarantee you. But I know you could read those words into it, and that's what we do. We read words into what someone has said or what someone has wrote, and then we trumpet it as if it's the truth. And that's the exact same thing this church did to the Apostle Paul. Be careful. Be careful. Should we expose false teaching? Absolutely. Please preach truth. 
But if you're going to try to go around and preach against all the false teaching that's out there, you're going to get very tired. I would say preach the truth. And if people know the truth, they'll recognize what is false. False. The article that circulated a few weeks ago on Facebook, maybe you saw it, the couple that was traveling, or the guy that got abandoned and, you know, this, this couple from Bethel Church out in Rapid City picked them up or in Edgemont picked them up and, you know, took them all around. It's a great article. I loved it. And everyone's like, yes, let's be like them. Let's love people. Let's love them. But the thing that struck me in the article was they were listening to Joel Olstein on the radio. Like, isn't he a heretic? That's what some people think. And yet no one picked up on that. We were so overwhelmed by those people's fruit that we didn't even care what they were listening to on the radio. Now, if you like Joel, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you whether Joel's a heretic or not. Ha ha. You figure that one out for yourself. But when Jesus said you're going to know false teachers by their fruit, not by their teaching, maybe that's what he was talking about you got to get up close and personal with people to really know what's in their hearts, what they're saying, what they're teaching. Don't just think the first time you hear it, boom. So let's come back and close with 2 Corinthians chapter 13. i got to find it in my notes because I can't read it on that screen. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Isn't it funny that after all that he's written to the Corinthian church, he still admits Christ Jesus is in them? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may have seemed to fail. So Paul says, I don't care if you reject me as long as you do what's right. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. That is why I write these things. When I'm absent, that when I come, I will not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss after the pandemic. All God's people send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's the the verse that we've hung our hat on is Restoration Church. I believe God has called us to be different. I don't, I'm not saying other churches are wrong. I'm just saying God's calling us to pay attention, to examine ourselves, to make sure we're doing more for them than we are for us. Because we're in. We're in. That word restoration means to make adequate, to furnish completely, and to cause to become fully qualified. And Paul uses it as a noun. I pray that you would come to that state, that fully restored state. That's my prayer for you.
But then he uses it as a verb and says, but you have to strive for it. I mean, I can pray it over us as a church until I'm blue in the face. But if we as individuals don't strive for it, we won't find it. We won't reach it. I'm over. I believe the, re- the calling that God has given us as a church is to live this out. I think I'm so uncomfortable with where we've come as a society in the church to put others down in the body of Christ that believe different than us. Yes, there are some doctrines we can't give on. I mean, they're, they're, anybody who claims that Jesus is not Lord, we have to, nope, there's no, we can't. But sometimes I think we take bathwater and we try to make it a baby. I think that's what happened to Paul. The very church he planted. And I bet all of us in this room would agree that the accusations against Paul, they were totally false. But if I sat here and named other ministers or, you know, other Christians, maybe we'd disagree on whether those accusations are true or false. But wisdom will be proved right by our children, by the fruit of our lives. And I think the way that God is calling Restoration Church to live is different. I don't think we should demand authority of anyone. But I think, like Christ, Paul says, I submit myself to everyone. You can't force me to do something. I'm going to do it. Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. Every right, every privilege that was ever known to anyone. And he emptied himself and became like us. Paul says the same thing. I make myself everybody's slave. Eat meat? I'll never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. See, but those words don't scratch us where we want. This week, we have a short reading, six verses. You could probably do it this afternoon. You could have probably done it while I was preaching. For weeks, I've been talking about the Bema podcast. And at the risk of maybe alienating some, I'm going to beg you. This week, I put on Slack four episodes. Four. Episodes 129 through 132. If you can't find them, send me a message, give me a call, I'll help you find them. And I want you this week to take some time Listen to those four episodes. It'll take you less than two hours. With your Bible open, those episodes are about the final week of Jesus. We're going to use them next week when we talk about Acts chapter 20 and the following week when we talk about Romans. So it's not a command. I'm not going to command you. But I'm going to ask you to, to listen because I think it's going to help us talk about how to study the scripture in a way that we don't use it as the wrong kind of weapon. Again, I put them on Slack. If you can't find them, call me. I'll help you find them. But I think our land needs healing, and I think our call as Restoration Church is to help provide it. And so, Father, thank you for lavishing your love on us, even while we were your enemies. Thank you that you've never treated us as our sins have deserved. Thank you, Jesus, that you willingly came to this earth. You'd emptied yourself. You made yourself 
a servant. You humbled yourself. You became obedient even to a death on a cross. Thank you that you were raised to life again and that you are seated now at the Father's right hand, ever making intercession for us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us, to strengthen us, to show us how to live, to give us the ability to do what is right. Holy Spirit, I pray that over these next few weeks, as we wrestle with Jesus' life on earth, as we wrestle with the, the teachings from the Apostle Paul, as we wrestle with the book of Romans together, God, open our hearts and our minds to the things that you're showing us in your word and give us the grace to put them into practice. God, we don't want to just have right theology. We want our theology to be lived out in our lives. We don't want to give ourselves to impurity and to sexual immorality, to all of the things that Paul has condemned in these letters. But neither do we want to give ourselves to slander and to gossip and to secret and shameful ways. We want our lives to be an open book. We want to be a church that brings the table back. We want to be a church that even when we disagree, we stay at the table of brotherhood together. Holy Spirit, show us how to live in this day. Show us how to rely on the God who raises the dead and not on ourselves. Strengthen us, empower us, and make us wise. Holy Spirit, I thank you for this body and I thank you for the calling that you have placed on Restoration Church, the things that you're doing in our lives individually and in our life corporately. I pray your blessing over this body. God, I know that there are those today that are still dealing with anxiety and worry and fear and uncertainty. Holy Spirit, overwhelm them with peace today. You are peace. Would you cause your face to shine on them? Would you lift up your countenance upon them? God, would you open doors that no one can shut? Would you shut doors that no one can open? Would you guide every one of our steps? Give us grace. Be gracious to us as we in turn are gracious to others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for staying a little long. Our ushers, our hosts,